through song. Turn with me to Philemon, and we'll see what God has for us in His Word. If you're looking for that book, it's the shortest in the New Testament. It's after Titus. It's before the book of Hebrews, the letter of Paul to Philemon. And this morning, I'll be brief as I want to give us an introduction to the letter. What I want us to do, similar to when we started Colossians, is get a sense for why do we need a book like this one? Uh, What is this book going to help us understand? What truths does it want us to write on our hearts? And so let's do that, um, and let's begin by first reading the letter together. It's a lot shorter than Colossians, so it shouldn't take us too long. The letter of Paul to Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Pray with me, Father, as we 
open your word. We recognize that in it is truth and life, and so help us to be attentive to it now, to limit distraction, and to give ourselves to hearing what it is that you have to say. We thank you for this awesome letter that takes theology and puts it into practice. And so we pray that you would help us to be those who love you in spirit and truth, those who love you and demonstrate it in the way that we live our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is a Spanish tale, it's kind of funny, but also kind of true, that I thought to share with you as we begin this letter to Philemon. It's of a father and his son who... Over time, they, be, they grow to become very estranged, and they have a very strenuous and um, difficult relationship, uh, to the point that at some point the son moves away and wants nothing to do with the father. They don't talk to each other. They don't write letters to one another. They never look for one another. And years and years go by and by, to the point that it begins to pain the father's heart. This father longs to restore that relationship with his son, and he recognizes that he needs to do something about it. But he doesn't know how to reach him. He doesn't know what to do. And so he decides, I'll put an ad in the newspaper. And so he does. And he says, Jose, if you're out there, this is your father, Lupe. Just kidding. I just came up with the name. Um, This is your father, and I'd love to reconcile with you. He puts the ad in the newspaper. He says in the newspaper, here's where I'd want to meet up with you. So if you see this, come meet me here this Saturday at 3 p.m. And so Saturday, 3 p.m. comes, and 800 men are standing in the square looking for this father. They're all named Jose, and they all want to be reconciled with their father. It's just not the son that this father was looking for. And as silly and as funny as that might sound, I think it is very telling of something that's very true for us. I think it's telling of the fact that forgiveness and reconciliation is something that many of us long for, but is so often hard to get. I think forgiveness and reconciliation is something that many of us would aspire to. And if the opportunity were given for that to happen, some of us would take it, but it's so difficult to come by. And this letter here, it gives us not only hope that that's possible, but it it tells us that it's true for us in Jesus. It tells us that forgiveness and reconciliation, they aren't these buzzwords that we use that are prone to be wishful thinking. They're realities that are true for us in Christ. Those who seek it, have it. And those who have it, give it. Those who have been forgiven by Jesus are the kinds of people that want to be forgiven and that want to forgive. They'll do anything. They'll put an ad in the newspaper if it means finding an opportunity to be right with someone with whom they've had a difficult time or the disagreement, some kind of discord. This letter, it we've talked about before how it comes on the heels of a letter like Colossians. And I think it's important for us to note that because now that we have an understanding of the theology of Colossians, a book that gives us such a high view of Jesus and that elevates Jesus to be in a place of his own, a Jesus who is first place, not just in some things, but in all things. 
And a letter that then encourages us to live in a way that would reflect the glory of Jesus in everything that we do. I think we find in Philemon the starting point of recognizing that your life is submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you declare that you've been forgiven by Christ, then you ought to be one who forgives. Before you decide or think that there are great things that you should do for Christ, there's no greater thing that you can do than to be reconciled with one another. There's something that stands out altogether in this letter, and maybe you noticed it when we read this short letter. There isn't a lot of doctrine in here. There isn't a lot of theology, so to speak. It talks about God and it talks about Christ, so I'm not saying it's void of those things, but it doesn't talk about the resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't talk about the death of Jesus. It doesn't talk about the life of Jesus. It doesn't talk about the life of the church. It talks about two individuals who need to come together. And in, what, in light of what they know about God, and in light of what they know to be true about Christ, they now need to put that into action. And I think that's really important for us to know. It's so easy to sit in a room like this. It's so easy to open your Bible. It's so easy to understand theological definitions. It's so easy to become accustomed to different doctrines and different arguments. It's so easy to become aware of truth and to never pour it out in the way that you live. And the number one way in which we would demonstrate that all the theology we've read about and learned about and heard about is true for us is that we would be the kind of people that seek to be right with one another. All proper theology, all true understanding of Christ, all knowledge of his holiness, all knowledge of his love, all knowledge of his grace, all knowledge of his humility, all knowledge of his infinite worthiness, it means nothing if you don't do anything with it. Where Christ is known, the Spirit dwells, and it works in the hearts of His people to be a people who are forgiven and who forgive much. I would venture to guess that this is important to you because relationships are one that require this on a regular basis. There's always someone who's wronged you or even someone that you think has wronged you. Someone who said something about you that's not true and has been spreading rumors and lies and gossip and slander about you that you're tired of, and I wonder what you do with that. Maybe there's someone who has simply, trust me, this is true because I know it's true of me, looked at you the wrong way, or so you think. And so in your heart, you harbor this bitterness towards someone simply because of the way that you locked eyes. Maybe there's someone in this room who has offended you in a deep and grievous way. They've taken something of yours that doesn't belong to them. They've slandered your name. Whatever it might be, there is plenty of friction where people exist. And what are you to do with it? The gospel of Jesus and those who believe in him, we're called to be a people that live perpetually in the gift that is forgiveness. And not only so, but we're to be called to be the kind of people who forgive and don't forget. Maybe you've heard it that way before. You forgive something and then you forget about it. I don't think that's actually the case or even the way that Philemon is being talked to by Paul. 
In fact, Paul's letter is an encouragement to go well beyond that. It's actually easy, and many people try to forgive and forget. That's fine. I'll never, I'll never bring it back up. I'll never talk about it again. I'm also never going to have anything to do with you anymore. Paul is so different than that. Paul is forgive and embrace. Forgive and be made new. Forgive, and that one that you once regarded as a slave, now regard him as your brother. Paul is one who, he talks heavily about forgiveness, but forgiveness is a doorway that leads to family. And amongst God's people, when we forgive one another, we're approaching it from a vantage point of saying, I want to deepen my relationship with you. Is that how you think of forgiveness? Paul's short letter here, it's powerful because it puts theology into practice. And more than anything, it's a demonstration that when we forgive one another, we're committing to being there for each other. I want to give you four reasons in particular that we should study this book in light of what we know of it. Four reasons why we should care about the letter to Philemon. And I will be brief so that we can take some extended time in this as we go forward. But number one, a reason that we should study the book of Philemon, faith in Jesus always begins personally. Faith in Jesus always begins personally. You'll note that this letter is different from all the rest simply in its name, right? There's Ephesus. There's Galatia. There's Colossae. There's Corinth, there's Thessalonica, and there's letters to guys like Timothy, but even that is a letter to a pastor for his church. This letter is so different. It's written to a particular member in the church at Colossae. And you'll remember we talked about this in the book of Colossians. Tychicus Tychicus came to that church with a series of letters, one of them for that church and one for this individual himself, a man prominent in that church, a man who very likely it seems, and it looks like, uh, the church meets in his house. He's of some status among this community of faith. And, And this letter comes directly to him, not about a corporate matter, or in other words, not about a church thing, but about a very personal thing. And it's given to us as a reminder that that's true for you and me. What Jesus is doing isn't simply a work in his church. It's a work in you. Jesus desires to have such an intimate relationship with his people. He isn't concerned simply about when we gather on Sunday. He's concerned with how you live from Monday on out. He's concerned with every step that you take in faith. Jesus isn't unaware about the things that you're doing, the things that you're saying, the things that you're thinking. And he isn't only concerned with when you're in these four walls. Jesus has a vested interest, a blood-bought interest in everything that you do. And so it is true for Philemon. Jesus is a personal God, and he's a personal Lord. And so he has a desire and an interest in knowing you In everything that you do, there is nothing you do, say, or think that is insignificant to Christ. Philemon reminds us that faith in Jesus always begins personally. Secondly, this letter reminds us 
Once you're forgiven by Jesus, you forgive like Jesus. Once you're forgiven by Jesus, you forgive like Jesus. This letter, like we talked about, it doesn't have a a ton of that theology that we're used to from a book like Romans or like Ephesians or like Galatians or Colossians. And yet you can see that the actions that Paul is inspiring in the life of Philemon, you can tell very quickly they have a source. And he demonstrates that by so clearly, clearly pointing back to the Lord Jesus so many times. Grace and peace to you, verse 3, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, he's heard of their love and of their faith that they have toward the Lord Jesus. Later on, he writes to them that he's a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. And in reflection of his life and commitment to Christ, he now calls this man to free this bondservant from this relationship that is only one of master and slave, but now to reconcile with him in a way that would regard him as a brother. And that should sound familiar to you. Because though you once were a slave to sin, Christ has rescued you, not only out of the pit of hell, not only so that you would live with him eternally, but so that you could relate to him forever as a brother. The relationship that Paul is calling out in Philemon, it's one that models after what Christ has done for us. In Jesus, we have received a similar and perfect reconciliation. We are no longer strangers to him. We're no longer aliens to the things of God. But we aren't distant relatives to Christ. Those who abide in Christ are regarded as co-heirs, as brothers, as those who deserve and are required now the same things that are owed to Jesus. Paul calls Philemon to live in the same way. Just as you have been forgiven in Christ, you should forgive like him. That's a good reminder for all of us because we are so prone to fall short in this area. We forgive when it's conducive to me. I'll forgive when it's convenient for me. I'll forgive when I've had enough time to cool off and then, uh, you know what, honestly, by then it's probably forgotten. I won't have to deal with it anymore. I'll forgive when that person comes to me. When they decide that it's right to come talk to me, that's when I'll maybe forgive. And so many conditions to how you forgive. And yet for Jesus, though you gave him no reason, gave his life as a ransom for you, though you never deserved it. Forgiven by Jesus always looks to forgive like Jesus. Number three, a third reason we need to study this book. Following Jesus comes with inevitable costs. Following Jesus comes with inevitable costs. Here we can talk a little bit about some of the key players in this letter. There's three predominantly, Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon. Paul is writing this letter to encourage Philemon to take back this person who was his slave and ran away. And we'll talk more about slavery, its implications, and how it works out in this context. But in the moment, it's enough for you to understand this was simply the economy of the time. A third of the people that lived in this day and age in Rome were slaves. And it was an economical outlet. By means of it, many were doctors and nurses and teachers and accountants. 
It was a way of living. It was a way of life. However, once a slave, always a slave, unless your master said otherwise. And so one strike Onesimus has against him is that he runs away. But secondly, Paul makes it known that, Paul, that Onesimus has also done something wrong to Philemon, more than just running away. We see this in verses 17 and 18. If you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. It seems Onesimus has committed a sin against Philemon. And so Philemon has many reasons that he could get back at Onesimus. There's a lot of stake in the game for him. And these three players, they're going to come to recognize that the law of love that we have in Christ will come to each of them at great cost in society. Think about it this way. Paul, though in prison, finds that Onesimus is in town and welcomes him in and coaches him up, and not only that, leads him to the Lord. A fugitive slave like Onesimus is the kind of person in society you weren't supposed to have anything to do with. If you brought them into your home, if you were kind to them, hospitable to them, that could lead to fines, penalties, jail time, or even death for you. Paul's already in prison. So you'd have to be a crazy person to take in more problems like Onesimus. But Paul operates out of a law of love. And Paul, because he loves the Lord Jesus, takes this man in, recognizing it could lead to more jail time, more harm for him. Loving Christ will cost you something. Or think about Onesimus. Onesimus comes to know the Lord Jesus. Paul now is sending him back home to Philemon. And in doing so, Onesimus has no idea what's in store for him. He has no idea if Philemon's going to listen to Paul's words. He has no idea if Philemon is truly going to forgive him. And once back home, Onesimus is opened up to a world of troubles. A fugitive slave like this. You could have your limbs cut off for the sake of doing something so egregious as running away from home. Not only that, but he's a runaway slave who's already wronged Philemon in another way. And so the reality is that this man could be hurt in a million ways and even be led to the point of death for his wrongs. And not only that, but if Philemon were to act in that way, Philemon would be seen as right in doing so. I know that in that position, I would be very scared of going back home, and I don't know if I'd have the strength to do so. Onesimus does. Why? Forgiven as he is in Christ, he recognizes to do the right thing might cost him something. He's willing to bear the consequences that his sins have brought out if it means that he's demonstrating a love for Christ by making it right with Philemon. I don't know what Philemon's going to do, but I will meet him head on. I, I will approach him in truth. I will ask for forgiveness for these sins. And whatever may come, I know that I'm right with God. And I know that I've owned up to my sins. Sins have consequences. And you have to be willing to face them. And a follower of Jesus, someone who loves him and pursues him, they're willing to take whatever cost might come for that lifestyle. 
Lastly, find Lehman. Paul has something that's going to be cost to him because of following Christ. Onesimus has a cost to him for following Christ, but so does Philemon. The expectation when a slave like Onesimus comes back home is that Philemon would deal with him justly. And I think that's not earth-shattering to you because that's the world that we all live in. We think the only thing to do in our day and age is to make things right, no matter what it takes. Everyone's got to pay. Justice must be served. If I think I've been wrong, we have to take care of it right now. I'm taking matters into my own hands. And Philemon would be right to do that. He could have this guy executed. He could have this guy flogged. He could have this guy cut into pieces. Whatever he would desire to do, it would be right of him because this man has wronged him. But Philemon's being called to forgive him. And if he does it, he knows that his name in the town will be that he's the softest guy around. He'll be ridiculed. He'll be shamed. He'll be disrespected. He'll be disregarded. His name takes a hit for forgiving a man like Onesimus. And those who love Jesus, their own name doesn't mean very much anymore. Philemon is willing to count the cost of following Christ. If it means forgiving this man, then he will do it because he's honored Christ over himself. Following Jesus comes with inevitable cost. Finally, I'll say this, and we'll talk more about this as we go on in the letter. But a fourth reason to study this book is this. Faithfulness to Jesus changes the world. Faithfulness to Jesus changes the world. Slavery was a huge part and is a huge aspect of this letter. And I know when we say that word, everyone in the room gets a little bit tense. It's not good. It's very abusive. It's very wrong. In fact, it's very gone. Kind of rhymed. Slavery is something that we don't condone anymore. Slavery is something that we can understand and we see how abhorrent it can be. And yet you look at a letter like this and you recognize that Paul's desire isn't to uproot the system of slavery. Unlike even many contemporary commentators would say that that's what we should do, that isn't Paul's intention or his focus. And I think it's worth noting that. Paul's focus isn't to undo the system, but it's to transform the people. Paul doesn't have a desire to change the economy But he does have a desire to see these two people regard each other as different than they ever did before. And though he isn't going to change the economy, he is going to have these two men regard each other as equals. How different that must have been in this time. The undoing of slavery, something that's been tried over and over, war after war after war. Wars don't settle the score when it comes to something like that. Do you know what does? The love of Christ. One where master and slave now regard one another as brother. This is Paul's charge to Philemon. He asks him to receive him in verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. What an awesome reality that in Jesus, a master and a slave can be regarded as brothers. 
I don't know if you know this, but uh, one of my favorite Christmas hymns is O Holy Night. I've been singing it all week because I found this out and then it's just been on my heart. But there's something really neat about this story is it, it finds its roots in France and it makes its way over to the United States in the year 1855. And a minister gets a hold of this song and he translates it into English. And it becomes a, a battle cry. It becomes a song that resonates with uh, the reflections and the desires and the expectations of what is to come in light of a, a war that all of you know about called the Civil War, a war that was fought essentially to undo slavery in America. And the reason this song was brought in and introduced and regarded as a, as a battle cry for this war in particular is because of verse 3 of that song that notes that in the gospel we've been brought peace and therefore the slave is our brother. That is the undoing of a system of abuse and hate and abhorrence. It isn't that we fight over it. It's where love springs forth and the gospel of Jesus springs forth and it reminds us that in Christ we truly are equals. Sure, we have a role to play in society. Sure, we'll have to fit in and find out what that is and then do our part. But you can't do evil to a brother, can you? You wouldn't disregard or mistreat a brother, can you? Or should you? First John makes it very clear for us that anyone who does not have a love for his brother doesn't have a love for God. And so this is revolutionary, not because it changes the system, but because of the gospel of Jesus, it changes people at their core. Faithfulness to Jesus can change the world. The power of Christ to undo the distinctions between all sorts of people. It's brought about an equality before God that has changed the world you live in. It's a reminder of what we do see in Colossians 3.11. That here, in Christ, there isn't Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And so it shifts our focus in the world from how can we change it to how can we be changed while we're in it. That was the effort that Paul was making. He wasn't looking to undo everything around him. He was looking to be different in the world, to ensure that Philemon and Onesimus were different in the world, so that one person at a time, the world might change. Not to their own good, not just simply for their own betterment, but to the glory of Christ. One in which, sure, systems might change, but more importantly, people are coming to know the lordship and beauty of Jesus as the only Savior. Reasons we should study this book, faith in Jesus always begins personally. Forgiven by Jesus, forgives like Jesus. Following Jesus comes with inevitable cost and faithfulness to Jesus changes the world pray with me father we do thank you for your word and your truth thank you god for your love toward us in christ thank you that in you we have all that we need 
And because of you and because of all the things we know to be true of you, we can live changed lives. And the key to that, one of the priorities of that is living as those, as those who have been forgiven and as those who are willing to forgive. The power of forgiveness is one that is granted to us in the cross of Jesus. May we never forget it and may we never cease to apply it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.